Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. A forensic account of Sri Lanka's 25-year civil war, told by one of India's most talented writers, Samant Subramanian, this divided island was shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction in 2015. The witty and urbane Subramanian, contributor for The New Yorker, amongst other publications, brings his journalistic rigour to bear on the story of a little reported conflict that forever marked the lives of those caught up in it. He appears in conversation with Steve Toussaint in a session supported by the Asia New Zealand Foundation. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Samanth, <clears throat> I knew virtually nothing about Sri Lanka when I, when I first read your book. Um, and I think it's probably safe to assume that that's the case for a lot of people in the audience as well. For, new, for many New Zealanders, Sri Lanka remains kind of at the edge of our map. It remains a cricket team, yeah, basically. It remains yeah. a cricket team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, we may be familiar with, we may have heard of the Tamil Tigers, we may have, we may be aware of the historical ethnic tensions between the Tamils and the Sinhalese people. Uh, we may even kind of remember from the news in 2009 the kind of the particular bloodiness of the final days of the, of the conflict. But the more particular details of the war probably we remain largely ignorant to. Um, you spent much of your young life in uh, the south of India. Mm -hmm. So for you, Sri Lanka would have at least been a little bit closer to home. Um, but I'm curious, what was your perspective on Sri Lanka growing up in South India? Was it a part of your kind of daily awareness, and it's particularly the conflict? Yeah, I grew up in, uh, in the city of Madras, which is now called Chennai. Uh, which is in a state that speaks the Tamil language. Uh, the state is called Tamil Nadu. And Sri Lanka is a couple of dozen miles away from the coast of South India. And the conflict in Sri Lanka was between, as you mentioned, a guerrilla group that wanted a separate homeland for people who spoke Tamil in Sri Lanka. They wanted to sort of uh, secede, take, take away the north and the east of the island and make it into an independent country. And so that the conflict was a linguistic conflict between Tamil speakers, a Tamil-speaking minority, and a Sinhalese-speaking majority. And uh, so as a result of that, as a result of the shared language between the people uh, in the state where I live, Tamil Nadu, and the Tamil speakers of Sri Lanka, I think the conflict was not only geographically close, but also spiritually close. Mm. Uh, you'd hear stories when I was growing up. I mean, uh, it was very natural, I think, at some point for the tigers, for the gorillas, to reach out to Tamil Nadu, to the government, to the people for some sort of moral and financial and right. logistical support. Uh, for a long time, the leaders of the Tigers, whenever it got too hot for them to stay in Sri Lanka, they would get into a boat and they would sail uh, sort of, you know, a few hours north and they would land in Tamil Nadu and they would lie low there for mm -hmm. a while and then come back. Uh, you'd hear stories of how in the smaller villages of Tamil Nadu, there'd be sort of little collection boxes that were set up in the village squares. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted, you could go and sort of donate money that would then be sent to the tigers in Sri Lanka. Okay. Uh, so, so there was a perception for a long time that, and maybe it was a reality as well, that the that the demand for a separate Tamil homeland in Sri Lanka found a great degree of support in South India. And you would read about this. I mean, uh, throughout the 80s and the 90s, the 90s in particular, when I was growing up, um, the headlines in my newspapers at home uh, would be bigger if they were from Sri Lanka as compared to if they were from Delhi, even though Delhi was 
part of India, and I was mm. part of India as well. Um, and then in 1991, uh, the Tigers assassinated a former Prime Minister of India, uh, just outside Chennai, where I was living at the time. And, uh, and that suddenly brought home, in an extremely violent way, uh, the conflict right to our doorstep, so mm. to speak. And that involved sort of the Indian state and the Sri Lankan state in this, uh, uh, in uh, a sort of detente. Because for, throughout the 80s, India was extremely actively involved in diplomatic and, uh, and political maneuvers in controlling the war in Sri Lanka. Uh, the minute the assassination happened, the Indian state sort of stepped back to a certain extent. Um, and... Uh, and, and so you read about that when you were growing up. You read about the assassination, the investigation, the arrests of these uh, former tigers, mm. uh, many of whom are still in prison in India right now. Uh, so it was, all, it was all sort of extremely close. You read about it all the time. And I started to wonder what the nature of this war was. I mean, I was young, but also mm. it gripped your imagination because it was a war that lasted. I was born in 1981. The war started in 1983. Mm. And it lasted throughout my childhood, throughout right. my adolescence, throughout my university career, throughout, you know, throughout the time that I started to get a job and started working. Mm. This was a long war. Yeah. And you started to wonder what, what would happen to a country that went through sort of three decades of war? What mm. would happen to the people who lived through mm. this kind of conflict? Uh, what was it like? I mean, what was life like if your routine life became mm. a life that was inflected by conflict? Were these the <laughs> questions that then kind of prompted you to, you know, move to Sri Lanka for 10 months and actually write this book? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. in 2009, the war ended in May 2009, I believe. Mm. And the first thought that I had was the thought that I, I suspect most journalists had or most journalists should have had, which is suddenly this country was open for a journalist to travel around in a way that it had never been. Talk to people who could talk to you with a freedom that they didn't have uh, for three decades, who, mm. could, uh, who could tell their stories. And so, uh, so I came to this realization in 2009. I went there for the first time in 2010 to do some uh, basic reporting. And then in 2011, in summer, I moved to Sri Lanka. I got an apartment in Colombo. Mm. And I stayed there for 10 months. I would sort of travel around every alternate week. I would go to the north and the east and the south, all over the country. And I would do interviews and I would talk to people about their lives and what it was like growing up uh, in the middle of this war. Mm. Oh, fascinating. Um you, you, you mentioned this <coughs> a minute ago, but um, r really early in the book, there's a, a, a great conversation with, with a character who you refer to as Uncle W, mm -hmm. who I believe is a, a, a Tamil man who is kind of, he represents this group that is trying to preserve Hindu mm -hmm. culture from alteration in, mm -hmm. in the center of, of the island. Um, and he says, he says something which I thought was very interesting. He said, the, the problem with the tigers was that they fought their war based on <coughs> language. And you sort of confirmed this a minute ago. Mm -hmm. um, but he says that language isn't enough of a unifying force. These struggles are better organized around religion. Mm -hmm. um, other people you speak to at different points of the book would seem to confirm that the, the war was very much about religion. Yeah. It, in your experience, is it primarily a war of, of language or primarily a war of religious difference? Well, the political causes that triggered the war were, I mean, had to do with the politics of language. Because what happened was at some point the Tamil speakers in Sri Lanka started to feel as if they were being edged out of the mainstream uh, by a Sinhalese-speaking nationalist majority. Mm. Uh, they started to feel, you know, for example, in the, in, the, in the 50s, if you wanted to work for the government, a new law mandated that you had to start 
clearing exams in the Sinhalese language, even if you were Tamil. This wasn't the case earlier. Uh, in the 70s, there were quotas set aside in education, in university education, for Tamil speakers, which restricted the number of sort of university admissions that they could get. So the, the Tamil minority started to feel that based on the language they spoke, they were slowly being sort of, you know, edged out of the mainstream. But, but it got messy, as things usually do. I mean, Sri Lanka is uh, a tiny island, but it has, you know, there are Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus on that island. Uh, the tapestry of religion is extremely complex, you know. I mean, every, uh, nearly every single Buddhist in Sri Lanka is a Sinhalese speaker. Near, nearly every, every single Hindu on the island is a Tamil speaker. Mm. All the Muslims are Tamil speakers, uh, but they're not considered Tamil, right. which is strange. Um, and then finally, you have the Christians who are both Tamil speakers and Sinhalese speakers. Wow. Uh, so it becomes extremely complex. Right. It becomes even more complex when you, uh, when you consider the plight of the Muslims, uh, which is heartbreaking because they are a really tiny minority, barely 10% of the population. Um, because they speak Tamil, they're not considered a part of the Sinhalese majority. And uh, at some point, if you... Uh, if you talk to uh, people who are members of the Tiger Movement or the Tamil uh, Nationalist Movement, you'd see that the Muslims aren't considered Tamil either. I mean, the, the census in Sri Lanka is bizarre because you'd see <coughs> a category called ethnicity. Mm. And the ethnic groups in Sri Lanka are classified as Sinhalese, Tamil, Muslim. And you'd think, but Sinhalese and Tamil are languages, so not necessarily ethnicities. Islam is a religion, it's not really right. an ethnicity, but that's how, I mean, that's just how right. complex the country is and how its identity is right. shaped. So language gets articulated as if it's a religion and religion gets right. articulated as if right. it's a language. Right. And, and there's certainly one kind of phenomenon <coughs> in Sri Lanka where religion and language are united, and that is in the, um, the Mahavamsa, mm -hmm. the, the fifth century um, epic of Sri Lankan nationalism. Buddhism. Yeah. Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the most fascinating elements of the book from my perspective was the way that this fifth century epic was continuously invoked by various members of Sri Lankan society as sort of um, both the proof and the justification yeah. for the kinds of government, <laughs> government um, interventions in mm -hmm. Tamil life. Um, and could you, could you talk a little bit about the, the character of, or the, the role that this epic plays in the, the kind of national imagination of Sri Lankans? Yeah. Um, so the, the Mahavamsa is the foundational epic of Sinhalese Buddhist nationalism. Uh, it, was started, you know, it was compiled roughly around the 5th century CE, uh, and it tells the story of the previous thousand years, roughly speaking. Um, and the, and the, sort of the, the raison d'etre of the epic itself is to show, to demonstrate how a succession of Sinhalese Buddhist kings have have safeguarded the faith, the Buddhist faith in Sri Lanka. And so it tells, it's almost sort of a, a roll call of the kings who lived through that time. But the hero of this book uh, is a king named Dutugemunu. And Dutugemunu is uh, the most famous Buddhist king in Sri Lankan history. Uh, there, are, there are fascinating stories about him. I, I'll tell a couple quickly, which kind of just illustrates the tone of the epic itself. When Dutugemunu was a young boy, he used to sleep curled up in a fetal position. And, uh, and his mother would ask him why this is, and at some point he gave her an answer. He said, how can I sleep uh, with my legs straight? On one side of me are the Tamils, and on the other side of me is the ocean, and the Tamils are waiting to push me into the ocean. Mm. You know, this is, this is a, it's a story that's symbolic of how the Sinhalese felt that they didn't have space, that they were con constantly 
being crowded out of their own island, despite the fact that they're the majority. Right. Dutu Gemunu grows up, he uh, fights a massive war with a Tamil king and beats him, defeats him in battle. Uh, and uh, reclaim sort of the entirety of the island for himself. But he has constant doubts. He's a Buddhist king and he's worried about the concept of karma. Mm. What happens, he thinks, what happens when, uh, you know, my army and myself, we've been complicit in slaughtering all these Tamils on the battlefield, civilians and soldiers alike. This troubles him. This troubles him because karma is important to the, to the larger process right. of rebirth. And so he calls up a congregation of Buddhist monks, his advisors, and he sets this problem to them. He says, what happens to my karma? So the monks go away and they come back and they tell him, you're all right. Um, <laughs> you know, the number of Tamils that you have killed uh, is equivalent, I forget the number now, but all these thousands of Tamils that you have killed is equivalent only to one and three quarter regular human beings. Most of the, Tam the Tamils you killed were akin to animals. They were heretics and you don't have to worry about mm -hmm. killing animals. And so Dutu Gemunu is then sort of, is, is, uh, is set at ease in this way. But this shows you the... Uh, you know, the spirit that animates a lot of this epic. Um, and uh, it is a spirit, as you said, that was constantly invoked by the Sinhalese Buddhist nationalists, yeah. by the right wing, uh, to justify the war against the Tamils, to justify um, a lot of the violence that was perpetrated on yeah. the civilian population. Well, you know, in the West, I think it's safe to say that we, our conception of Buddhism, which is maybe frequently uninformed or underinformed, is its signification <laughs> is non-violence, yeah. kind of spiritualist detachment from the world. Mm -hmm. um, do we have a naive view of Buddhism in, in the West? Well, I mean, I, I, frankly, when I was in India, I mean, I was surprised to find out just sort of how, uh, I mean, the nature of Buddhist right-wing nationalism in Sri Lanka. You see a lot of it in, in, um, in Myanmar now as well. Uh, and I guess the lesson so much is not that Buddhism itself has strains of violence in it as the fact that any religion can at some point be bent by right. nationalists to justify violence. Yeah. Any religion. Right. All any the religions religion. of, the, of the world, I believe, at some point have a message of sort of, you know, peace and right. amity uh, at their core. But it's very easy for nationalists. I mean, I would talk to sort of Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka, uh, partly out of fascination, because I would want to hear their rationalizations of the violence that they advocated. Right. Uh, and, and it was fascinating. I mean, the... the you know, the loop-de-loops of logic that they would execute were just yeah. fascinating to listen to. There's a particular moment in the, in the book where you're, you're interviewing a, a, a right-wing nationalist monk, yeah. somebody who's entered politics yeah. um, very much against, the, I guess, the, what, you, what you'd imagine are the limitations of, of a right. monk. Um, and you, you say something in here that I thought was, uh, I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful insight, but really, and really interesting. The Sinhalese like to think of their Buddhism as muscular. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, it's always, I mean, it's been this, uh, it's, it's been this continuing strain, as I mentioned, throughout uh, Sinhalese Buddhist history, is that somehow there is a certain insecurity that is associated with it. Uh, the fact that the faith has a haven in Sri Lanka, uh, that it has been sort of driven out of India to a large extent, you know, but it has been overwhelmed by Hinduism in India, and Sri Lanka is its last refuge. Right. And so... To go with that insecurity is this necessity to play yourself up as sort of a muscular kind of faith, a faith that will survive, that will thrive, that has the sort of the backbone to stand up to uh, 
stand up to you know foreign intruders to other faiths to other religions um there was a there was an extreme and this is tied up very much with Sinhal, the Sinhalese language's own insecurity the fact that Sinhalese is only spoken in Sri Lanka and nowhere else and so therefore you have a a need to preserve the language right. i mean this was what i was talking about when i said that the, you know religion and language sort of muddle muddle themselves up in odd ways there was a there was a conversation i had with an archaeologist in sri lanka which was extremely interesting uh he he was sort of sort of on the right wing of the spectrum although not a rabid sort of right winger and i would talk to him and i you know we were talking about uh the sinhalese insecurity and he said yes but you have to understand the sinhalese speakers are an are a, are a minority here and this puzzled me because that's that's implicit that's explicitly not the case mm. you know uh so i started to sort of calculate the demographics again in my head and however i juggled the numbers i couldn't come up with how the sinhalese were the minority and i said but that can't be right i mean how do you how do you account for that well he said you know we are sort of 15 million people but then you have some tamils here but then you have 70 million tamils in india and wow. and it struck me that that was the mentality that has been sort of animating a lot of this insecurity right. is that india is so close you know a couple of dozen miles away uh, and there's 70 million tamils ostensibly apparently waiting to take over this island and overrun it with you know their hindu faith and their tamil religion mm. or the, the hindu faith and their tamil language right, right. and it's it's very telling it was a very right. telling conversation for me at that Almost point Almost as if the northern border of sri lanka is not really a, a a fixed point and it actually kind of flows continuously into south india right and that is actually that was the reality for a, lo- a, a large part of india and sri lanka's history because you know this concept of sort of the nation state the concept that sri lanka was a different state uh is very modern right right course. for but for thousands of years you know fishermen for example would fish uh in the waters between india and sri lanka they would cu- they would come and go as they pleased there was sort of no passport control at one end or the other and so it really reflects a reality of history for a long time fascinating um to kind of change tack and actually to start to maybe move from the sinhalese to talk about the the tamil populations of of sri lanka um One of the most fascinating elements in the book is is certainly the the figure of Prabhakaran mm-hmm. the the leader of the Tamil Tigers um and I was particularly interested in the kind of cult of personality yeah that seems to surround him to have surrounded him and and to continue to surround him even in death um and there's some really just really striking luminous anecdotes in the book about certain eccentricities of his character um towards the end of uh, you described towards the end of the war he there's a story that he would be passing out to his men um copies of the of the film 300 DVDs mm-hmm. to sort of try to infuse them with the sort of Spartan spirit of you know it's us against this massive unstoppable force and we'll still remain victorious or keep our integrity right because um, they were in very much the same position they were trapped in sort of a little corner of the country right. there behind them was the ocean so they couldn't flee and right. it, you know in front of them was arrayed the entire might of the Sri Lankan army it make, i mean it makes sense as a as a as a sort of propagandistic gesture Absolutely. i guess yeah, yeah. um he raises leopard cubs mm-hmm. and kind of wears this kind of tiger striped camouflage um, camouflage yeah. Yeah. um there's, there's conflicting stories about his death whether it was this um kind of he went down in a sort of blaze of glory or whether it was much less dignified than that or whether he went down at all i mean there are still people or who believe he he's going to sort of return from the dead and lead a new i mean it's this is this right. is a genuine sort of belief that a lot of right. people have can i ask in your in your time in sri lanka and your many conversations with very different people in the country did your opinion of prabhakaran change at all <coughs> over the course of that time i don't think it changed but it certainly sort of it got deeper and it got a little bit more nuanced um i was you know i went in there as sort of the 
you know, a sort of the classic liberal, right? When I, when I, I went in there and I, I just couldn't understand how anybody would ever sort of resort to violence. In my mind, that was just always a no-go for me. As far, and, right. and while I, don't, I definitely don't condone violence now, I mean, please, that is not the takeaway from this. Um, but, but, you know, I would talk to enough people who, are part, who were a part of the Tigers in the 1970s when the group started that I got a sense of the kind of frustrations that they were going through. Mm. I mean, this was at a moment in time where, the, where Tamil politicians had for more than a decade tried in the, in the, in the traditional political way to uh, demand the kind of rights that they believed the community should have. Mm. And they had failed at every point. And uh, as a result, all these young men and women uh, who were extremely educated, I should mention. I mean, they, right. they, they, the Tamil population in Sri Lanka is hugely literate, extremely well-educated, uh, but, but their lives would go nowhere. I mean, they would find very little uh, opportunity for employment. This was a time when, in Sri Lanka, if you didn't work for the government, there were very few other places that you could work. And so if those avenues of employment were cut off, uh, there was a certain amount of frustration that was starting to build because of this. And... Uh, and, and and at some point, I mean, it, it seemed that what the Tamil population wanted was uh, a new dynamic new figure who would sort of represent the community uh, and, uh, and who would do so in a forceful manner. And Prabhakaran chose to do this uh, from the point of, you know, from behind the stock of a gun, so mm -hmm. to speak. Does he remain, for many Tamils, a, a galvanizing figure for maybe... in? in you know, towards a future revolution, towards a future movement? Is he, no, is he still Sh important? No, in Sri Lanka, I think he's, he's a much more sort of divisive figure now okay. among the Tamils. Because I think at some point, uh, once he sort of accreted all this power to himself, he started to abuse it, as people inevitably do. And, uh, and so he's, you know, the Tigers were notorious for, for example, uh, press-ganging young children to fight in the front lines right. of, the, of the war. Uh, they would kill their own frequently because throughout the 80s, the Tigers' main enemy was not necessarily the state. It was a lot of other similar guerrilla groups that had come up that Prabhakaran saw as his rivals. Right. So he spent a large part of the 80s essentially rubbing them out mm. and to become sort of the sole undisputed representative of the Tamil community. Uh, so that has caused a lot of animosity among the Tamils. Uh, and then just the, the way in which he and his sort of his immediate closed circle lived in relative luxury. I mean, this is a man who had swimming pools built in every single bunker uh, that he hid out in, in the jungle. Right. Um, I mean, he couldn't do without his material right. uh, luxuries. Uh, and at the same time, I mean, the population was, the Tamil population was being asked to give up money, their, you know, their children, a lot of their own sort of basic necessities. Uh, and that caused a lot of uh, animosity as well. So I think the war was lost in a sense when he lost the support of a large part of the Tamil community itself. Right. Yeah, there was, I mean, an another figure that constantly came to mind reading these descriptions of him was, that was strangely, um, the Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar mm -hmm. in, in, a, in similar kinds of, a certain kind of mystique and legend right. associated around him, a folk hero to some, right. this kind of, you know, a terrorist to others. Right. Um, yeah, that was very interesting. I, I recently um, watched an interview with uh, the Tamil um, Sri Lankan rapper M.I.A., um, probably one of the most famous uh, Tamil Sri Lankans in the world now, mm -hmm. um, and who, whose family were, were, you know, deeply activistic during the, the kind of the height of the war and then had to flee. Um, and it was an interview with, a, with a, I think, with a BBC correspondent. It was, in after, it was after the war. She's been very critical of the, um, the Rajapaksha uh, government. And um, what was really interesting was the, the interviewer kept kind of pushing her mm -hmm. to condemn categorically 
the violence that the Tigers perpetrated. And she was very reluctant to do that. Um, and uh, it, it seemed as if to do so would be to, to implicitly condone then what the Rajapaksa government has since done to the Tamil population of the country. Um, is that kind of response, that kind of unwillingness to, to, to categorically condemn the violence, is that, would you, was that characteristic of the Tamils that you spoke to in the country? No, but it was characteristic of a lot of Tamils who lived overseas. Um, oh, and, the, and the diaspora, the diaspora, the Tamil diaspora, particularly in, in the UK and Canada, uh, played an extremely interesting part in the war. Mm because it was their funds that kept the tiger struggle going for as long as it did, in large part. Um, you know, bank accounts in Switzerland, for example, were controlled by Tamils living in Switzerland. I mean, these were tiger accounts in one sense or another. Um, there, was a lot of sort of, uh, there was a lot of sort of near mafia behavior by the tigers who uh, had representatives overseas. So, there, you know, you would be, if you were a tiger living in Toronto, uh, if you were a Tamil living in Toronto, you would be shaken down for money. Uh, you know, somebody would come to your door and say, the movement needs money. If you decided not to contribute, your, you know, your car would be uh, stoned or smashed up the next day. Uh, so you had to contribute. And it was a, a lot of this money that was, you know, going back uh, to Sri Lanka to buy guns and to, you know, to fund Prabhakaran Swimming Pool. And, um, and, uh, and the Tamils in Sri Lanka have an extremely nuanced view of this. I mean, they see the diaspora as having been a destructive influence in some sense, because it was very easy for the Tamils living overseas to contribute money, but not their own children, right. to perpetuate a war that was really wrecking the lives of Tamils in Sri Lanka. Right. Uh, and so they are extremely critical of the kind of uh, support that the movement uh, elicited overseas. Uh, and, and it is common. Overseas, it is common. I, I was in Canada again recently. Uh, it was the first time I went back since I went to research a part of the book. And I, and I was struck again by, this, by the kind of monotony of views that you find very often in the diaspora. It's just a blind, I mean, a blindly articulated support mm. of the tigers without any sort of uh, understanding of the kind of uh, you know, destruction that it visited upon the lives of Tamils themselves. Right. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Um, uh, one of the most, for me, one of the most disturbing passages of the book um, details the, the uh, a Tamil attack, or I'm sorry, a, a tiger attack on, on a mosque mm -hmm. in, um, I think, Batikaloa <coughs> in, the south, in the southeast. Um, do you, I think you're going to read uh, to us from, yes. that, from the passage. Yeah. Could you s maybe contextualize it and then... Yes. Um, yeah. So uh, the town of Batikalo is on the eastern coast of Sri Lanka. Uh, it was a part of sort of the, the Tamil-speaking uh, homeland that Prabhakaran wanted to sort of rest away from the rest of uh, Sri Lanka. And so I was in Batikalo, and at some point I was reading, uh, uh, you know, my one of my little histories of Sri Lanka, and I read about this little, there was a little snippet about how uh, in the early 90s the tigers decided that they wanted to drive a lot of the Muslims out of this homeland that they would, uh, they would achieve at some point. So, for example, if you, if, you went to, if you were a Muslim living in the north, in Jaffna, uh, at some point you were given, I think, 40, between 48 and 2 hours to vacate. Uh, you were sort of asked to pack up whatever you wanted and leave your house. Uh, you would be stopped at a checkpoint and all your valuables, your jewelry, your money, all that would be taken by the tigers, and you would be allowed to proceed on your way to sort of refugee camps in the south of the island. Uh, in the east, uh, the measures, as I'm going to read, the measures were sometimes a little bit more uh, violent because the idea was that, as I said, the idea was that Muslims weren't Tamils. They had no place in this homeland, so they had to leave. And um, so I, I traveled out of Batikalo 
uh, a few miles, and I came to this town called Katankuri, which is where these two mosques were, where uh, on one Friday evening in the early 90s, the tigers went into the mosques during Friday prayers and shot up anybody who was in there praying. Uh, and I wanted to go there to kind of, I mean, I went there just to look at the mosques, and I bumped into somebody uh, whose nephew was a survivor of one of these massacres. And so I went to see him uh, that evening, and that's sort of the section that I'm going to read from. I returned at 5 p.m., and we sat in Ismail's living room, where strips of patterned chocolate brown linoleum had been pasted out of alignment on the floor, so that it looked as if it was tilting and teetering, like the floor of a crazy house at a funfair. Ismail's blackened feet stuck out of his striped sarong. Printed leaves drifted down the expanse of his white linen shirt, as if they were drawn by the gravity of his pot belly. I've spoken to journalists a couple of times before, Ismail said. I don't mind telling you what happened that day, but I have a question for you. Of course, I said. He wanted to know what kind of book I was writing, I thought. What good will this conversation do for me, he asked. I had no answer to give him. I'd asked this question of myself often in Sri Lanka, uncapping deep wells of self-doubt. Even in ordinary circumstances, the work of a journalist can feel like that of a parasite, fattening itself on the, t on the time and memories of others, but giving back nothing tangible at all. In Sri Lanka, the process felt especially voyeuristic, as I asked people to rehearse the pain of their lives so that I could write a book they would never read. Will I ever even see you again, Ismail asked, and the honest answer was, probably not. I wasn't from Sri Lanka, so after this book was written and forgotten, I would, in all likelihood, visit sparingly. It's important that these stories be recorded and told, I could say, as indeed I did say to Ismail, it was true, but at the same time, it must have sounded pathetic and hollow to a man whose relatives had been killed and who still limped because he had two inches of shrapnel nestled within his left thigh. Ismail shrugged. What you can do, he said, is take down my number, and when the book comes out, send me a copy. Will you do that? Of course, of course, I said, feeling even dirtier now for having been requested to do so little in exchange for receiving so much. In 1990, Ismail, having just finished his A-levels, finished was working at a shop in Batikolo, and he had watched ties between the tigers and the Muslims go, grow flimsier and flimsier. There was history here. The two groups clashed first in 1985, and when the government created a home guard in 1986 and staffed it with Muslims, relations worsened. The killings began the next year. 30 Muslim passengers on a bus, dozens of Muslim policemen in Ampara, men and women and children returning from the Hajj. When a Muslim member of the Tigers was mysteriously murdered, 75 people were rounded up in Katanguri for questioning and were never seen again. Ismail's best friend was one of those 75. I was part of another group of around 50, and we were boxed in on the street by just three Tigers with guns. They kept asking us, who killed him? We said we didn't know anything. When we were dispersed, we didn't know how to leave because we were sure that if we turned our backs on them, we would be shot. We were saved, I think, because one of the Muslims in this group knew some tigers well. The summer of the mosque massacres had been long and enervating. 
The army prevented Tamil civilians and traders from leaving or entering the district, so Katangudi's Muslims, who were permitted to drive to nearby towns, became the sole source of provisions. In June, the tigers stormed the town, imposed an ad hoc curfew, and raided the shops to resupply themselves. During the spree of looting, when one Muslim man unknowingly wandered out of his house, he was immediately shot. In July, the tigers halted and robbed a convoy of goods, goods trucks. Their Muslim occupants, including one of Ismail's cousins, were first herded into a house by the road, then taken outdoors and killed, all five dozen of them. August was hot, and you could sense so much tension in the air, Ismail said. We had no food, and we had no electricity, and we had no work. At night in the streets, neighborhoods burned piles of tires. The tires threw off clouds of reeking smoke, but the light of the flames helped warn families of approaching danger. That day, August the 3rd, was really hot, and we were all more tense than usual, Ismail said. Could we go out? Should we? He attended afternoon prayers at half past noon, sat down for an early dinner at 5 p.m., and then decided to visit the beach with four friends. Around 6.30, they left the beach to go back home. It was already dark by then, and the street lamps were dead. Only bonfires of tires threw any light at all on the vacant streets. Ismail parked his bicycle at home, washed his hands and feet, and crossed the, mo across the road to the Hosseinia Mosque in time for the 8 p.m. prayer. With him were his two younger brothers, aged 12 and 13, and his two cousins. The prayer was about half over when we heard a shot. It was just one shot, somewhere far, somewhat far away near the Mir Jumma Mosque, I think that was a signal to start. One of the worshippers at Hosseinia yelled, shooting, shooting, run, run. There were 35 people inside the mosque, and only one door functioned as both entrance and exit. By the time the congregants had risen to their feet, the tigers were at the outer gate. They told us all to come out, Ismail said. There was an old teacher of mine with us. He was disabled with only one arm and one leg. He shouted back, there's no one in here with guns. We'll shoot if you don't come out. We'll fire, we'll fire, we'll fire. Ismail emphasized how the warning was repeated in triplicate. Sudovom, Sudovom, Sudovom. He jabbed his finger in the air as if he was ringing a doorbell with impatience. It was difficult to tell how many tigers were outside the mosque, although Ismail could hear them conversing outside and even glimpse them through a window. They were in civilian clothing, he said. Later, there was a rumor that the Sri Lankan army was behind the attack, but you can tell the difference between Tamil-speaking Tamil and Sinhalese-speaking Tamil, which is how I knew it wasn't the army. And in any case, at the time, the tigers controlled this area completely. The mosque was surrounded on three sides, and through the windows in these three walls, the tigers tossed in grenades. Then the barrel of a submachine gun was inserted through a hole in the decorative latticework near the door, and the firing began. Ismail's father had contributed funds for the construction of this mosque, and so he still had a key for the locked door. He took me there now, hobbling as he crossed the road. The mosque had a sloping roof, shingles of red clay laid over a frame of round wooden beams. The grenades and bullets had perforated the mosque's walls and pillars, punching untidy circular holes in the masonry. The low, shallow basin, where Muslims once washed their feet before prayers, was dry. The mosque was hot. The air seemed not to move at all, as if it was still stunned from the events of two decades ago. 
This is where I lay, see? Ismail pointed to a spot by the door. Two other people had fallen on top of me. They were bleeding all over me. After the first squall of firing, there was a lull. The tigers who had believed the door to be locked found now that it was merely shut and they pushed it open. Inside the mosque was profoundly dark. An oil lamp had been lit to guide the prayers, but it had been extinguished in the confusion. Two tigers came in to sift through the bodies with harrowing thoroughness. The first tiger, carrying a small flashlight, would point to people who still seemed to be alive. The second would finish the job. Ismail, already wounded in his thigh, was certain that he would die, but the two corpses lying on top of him kept him hidden from view. I thought of the people at home. What would they do? How would they cope with all this death? The tigers heard a sound outside and left the mosque. There was another suffocating silence. Then the tigers came back in and shouted, Everybody who isn't injured, get up. Come out and help us take the injured to the hospital. At this, Ismail's cousin, the six-year-old Akram, jumped up and in tears shouted, I want to go home. I don't want to be here. The tigers put the barrel of a gun into Akram's mouth and fired. He was right by my feet, Ismail said, and I couldn't do a thing to save him. Ismail's eyes had glazed over and he wasn't even looking at me anymore or looking at anything else in the mosque. I found I couldn't look at him either, so I stared down hard at my notebook, not really reading the words but tracing the cursive with my eyes anyway from loop to loop. It gave me something to do. There was one final round of shooting. The tigers stood just inside the doorway of the mosque, framed against the awful night, and raked the floor again with gunfire. Ismail caught one of these bullets in his stomach. When they left, he heard a grenade go off at the intersection of roads nearby. Another signal, he thought indistinctly, before passing out. The attack lasted a total of 10 minutes. Ismail found this out later because a clock on the wall, its face shattered, had stopped cold at 8.10 p.m. Ismail spent the next two weeks in the hospital intermittently conscious. In that time, the tigers carried out a second massacre in a town four miles north, ranging through that village's Muslim areas all night to kill more than 100 people. For the next two years, Ismail was in and out of hospital, undergoing surgery, learning how to walk all over again. He was frustrated, he said, by the helplessness of his community. We stayed away from the tigers largely, and we weren't involved in their movement at all. Even so, we received no guarantee of safety from the state. After the slaughter at the mosque, he forbade his Tamil friends from ever speaking admiringly of the tigers. Do it elsewhere, but not in front of me, I told them. If you do, you're indirectly responsible for what happened to me. He had photographs, he suddenly remembered. We were back at his house now, and he lurched heavily into the next room to retrieve an album. One of those cheap commercial holders of happy memories that are sold in every corner store in the world. On its cover, a small blonde boy in a straw hat and denim overalls snuggled up to a small blonde girl wearing Mary Jane shoes and a pink bow in her hair. In the album's first few leaves, Ismail's brothers and cousins clown around and mug for the camera. One photo, taken three months before the massacre, shows the four small boys packed tightly onto a green couch, Akram on the extreme left, his moon face clad in a smile. Immediately on the next page, he lies supine on the mosque's floor, his face turned to the left so that the camera cannot see the exit wound. 
as per custom, a strip of white cloth runs around his face, holding his jaw closed, and his wrists are also tied together, the body thus trussed in preparation for his burial. The floor around him is covered in blood. It speckles his white shirt and the skin of his arms. What is visible of his face, however, seems at first to be entirely unhurt. The right eye is closed as if in calm slumber. And only on closer examination does it become clear that his left eye, his left cheek, that entire hemisphere of his face has disintegrated. In the space of a single page of a photo album, Akram's momentary life has come to a tattered end. Um, Ismail asks you, what good will this conversation do for me? Such a frank, um, you know, and, but important question. Um, you're not a Sri Lankan. H how, did you, how did you conceive of your, your role in, the, in telling this story, the, your, your responsibilities, your, your, your duties, your limitations? In some sense, that conception is still evolving. Um, I mean, I knew when I went in there that my duties as a journalist in Sri Lanka were the same as they were everywhere, which is to be fi fair and transparent and as balanced as I could possibly be. Uh, I had to make sure that I told people's stories honestly and accurately, that I tried to hear people from sort of every side of the political spectrum uh, and, uh, and just give as honest a reflection of the war as I could put together. But, uh, but this question of what this, what, the, what this kind of book can do and whether this kind of book needs to be written at all and you know, whether it serves any sort of utilitarian purpose to the people whose stories it tells, mm. I'm still, I, I'm, I'm not very sure where I stand about that even today. Um, you know, I've been a journalist now for 15 years and it was, it's very easy to, uh, to, to come to a, a conception of the journalist's role when you're doing other kind of writing. But when you, when you write stories about people who are poor or who have been affected by natural disaster or who have been affected by war, um, at that point it starts to become a little more, you, you start to think about your job a little bit more and you start to wonder whether the time that you spend talking to them is not better served on both people's, on both parties' sides, uh, making some sort of material improvement to their lives. And whether this kind of journalism in any way achieves that, whether in the short term or the long term. I mean, it's, it's extremely, po it's possible to justify to myself the fact that, you know, this book has been written, you know, it's been read by people who are associated with, for example, the, you know, the United Nations Human Rights Council. Uh, therefore, the pressure that the UN imposes on the Sri Lankan government mm. to uh, set up tribunals and investigations into war right. crimes, that will increase, you know, and so indirectly there may be some sort of benefit that is, that is accorded not to the people who are in the book, but to other people who need uh, that kind of intervention. That's certainly logical and it's a, you know, it, it might well happen, it might well be happening already. But uh, there's no doubt that Ismail is living exactly the kind of life that he was living when I left him. Right. And uh, the struggle to reconcile that uh, with the work that I do. is no, It's not something that I've resolved in my own head even today. Thank you. Um, I want to turn the, the mic over to you. Um, but before I, so if you have any questions, it might be a good time to start queuing up on either side of the room. Um, before I do that, though, I wanted to ask you 
Um, a last question. Um, the book ends in 2012, I mm -hmm. believe, early 2012, and um, seemingly in a not very happy place for Sri Lanka. Um, the UN disputes the government's claims about how many casualties actually occurred in the final days of the war. Um, the Rajapaksha government is on this kind of parade of triumphal nationalism. Um, the Tamil people are exhausted and um, seemingly kind of ambivalent about the future of, 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 of their own um, existence on the island. Um, has anything improved since then? Well, it's one of those uh, rare moments in the world's history when you can say something has improved, actually. Between 2000, 2012 is when I was there last, and the book is sort of update, came out in 2014, and it's updated until 2014. In 2015, there were two elections in Sri Lanka, uh, a presidential and then a parliamentary election. In both elections, uh, the Rajapaksas and their sort of coterie of politicians and, and legislators were defeated. There's now a new government in Sri Lanka that was elected on the promise of uh, improving relations between the Tamils and the Sinhalese, mm. uh, between restoring a lot of the civic, civic rights and liberties that were taken away from the Tamils, that promised uh, an investigation into war crimes uh, that were committed towards the end of the war in 2009, um, that promised to release a lot of the people who were still in detention, that uh, promised to stop attacks on journalists and human rights activists. Uh, this was a unique, I mean, in Sri Lanka's history, this is sort of a unique um, aggregation of political parties that came together from all you know, sides of the political spectrum to defeat the Rajapaksas. Uh, it's been about a year since, uh, more than a year, I think, since the new president was elected. Things are moving slowly. Okay. Uh, things move slowly in Sri Lanka anyway, and things are moving slowly now. Uh, but there is a process now in place to write a new constitution, to set up uh, a new sort of lessons learned and reconciliation commission uh, that will then travel around the country hearing eyewitness statements, recording testimony, and then advising the government on what can be done to improve relations between the Tamils and the Sinhalese. So, you know, nobody has been convicted or indicted. Nobody's even on trial yet for a lot of the crimes that were right. committed. Um, none of that has happened. But I, Im I imagine that if this kind of thing has to happen at all, it will start slow right. and hopefully pick up momentum. So, you know, the next two or three years will be crucial, I think, and I'm definitely watching with great interest to see right. whether this government sort of fulfills even half the promises that it came to power with. Right. Because if it does, that will be a tremendous achievement. Well, one of the, one of the big unanswered questions or series of unanswered questions at the end of the book is what happened to a lot of these missing militants, journalists, some, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of kind of wives and mothers and brothers and sisters still looking mm -hmm. for answers about what happened to their, to their loved ones, and the government's being very unresponsive mm -hmm. or, or, and quite difficult about, about even, even kind of fessing up to, to deaths or, or mm -hmm. to, to assassinations or executions. Has any of that been, has any of that culpability been taken? Not yet. Um, I mean, it's, it's fairly clear that, I mean, a lot of the people who were abducted in this way or who were taken into custody at the end of the war, it's fairly clear that they're dead. Um, but nothing, there's been no announcement that's been made to that effect. And even the new government has not sort of come out and said anything uh, because to, to say something would then be to uh, face the kind of pressure 
in which you have to uh, start to indict people who are members of the security forces and the previous government. Right. And so they can't kind of, they, they cannot say that until they're ready to take the kind of action that it requires. But it's been, you know, it's 2016 now, the war ended in 2009. I mean, I, I just, I, I heard one of the most tragic, I, I was speaking to somebody in the government who was in the previous government, who was more of a liberal than the Rajapaksas. And I was asking him, saying, you know, this, all these, I was asking him about one particular journalist who was uh, abducted and never seen again, still hasn't been seen again. Mm. And I asked him, I said, do you know what happened to him? And he says, no, I don't know. But look, and, th and this was just the most tragic explanation I heard for why he thought uh, he'd been killed. He said, look, it's been two years since he was abducted. Prageet, this journalist, Prageet was a diabetic. Do you really think the state is going to pay for insulin for two years to keep him alive? Mm. And it just, it tore me apart. Mm. That there was this, this man who was ill, and the only way you could be sure that he, was, yeah. he had been killed was that the state would not keep him alive at its own expense. Wow. And... Um, the kind so, of utilitarian thinking yeah, that it was, involved it, it's in that. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, right. you know, there's a profit and debit kind of ledger over here, and killing him was just cheaper and more convenient than keeping him alive. Thank you. Um, please join me in thanking Samantha Gamani. Thank you. Wonderful session. Thank you. Thank you. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.